Robin and I didn't get a chance to uh, compare notes, but uh, hopefully we're going to be complementary because I'm going to be uh, talking primarily about Niebuhr's theology rather than his social um, uh, philosophy. But before I do, um, I thought we ought to let Niebuhr have a word. Uh, people, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, there are about 200 hours of his uh, sermons and the course he taught at Union um, on the history of Christian social ethics. And I thought you just might like to hear for about uh, seven minutes Reinhold Niebuhr as he leaves Union giving his commencement address. I thought that would be a way to honor Niebuhr. You want to play it? I thought I had it set up. It's, um, I thank you for this. Turn it up. This is my swan song, as it were. <laughs> and um, so I want, first of all, to thank the faculty. I'll have a chance to thank afterward, but the student body for bearing with me for in the 32 years of my. Uh, vocation here at Union, one for eight years have been in semi-inwardism, and I have not had the range of contacts with the students that I used to have in the days of my health. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm very egotistic. I count the ages between before I had a stroke and after I had a stroke. That makes all the difference. Uh, the chairman and the forum committee have kindly given me free range to talk on reflections. Uh, the the uh, weekly calendar says reflections on my years in Union, but I'm not going to do that. That would be boring. That would be reminiscences rather than reflections. But reflections, uh, and of course that gives a broad range, and I'm going to reflect on two things that have, uh, I think, concerned all of us. One a theological problem, and one a religio-moral problem that concerns both theologians and the ministry. About the theological problem, I'm concerned about the essential obscurantism of Protestantism taken neatly. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, and this is not a new uh, thesis of mine. I elaborated my different lectures decades ago. Uh, there's always, and there must always be, a commerce between uh, the Christian faith and the disciplines of culture. I'm going to talk about this commerce between the Christian faith and the disciplines of culture, not in the way that my brother did, although I owe very much to his Christ in culture, because I'm not going to deal deep with culture in the whole realm of civilization culture, but with the disciplines of culture. And it's quite obvious that the, all the early ages and the medieval ages had 
classical learning and biblical faith. And may I say that I uh, believe, whatever the comments, is that there must be a basis in Christian faith that there is no way for any philosophy, whether it be idealistic or realistic or naturalistic, to comprehend the mystery of human existence, the incongruity of man in his uh, relationship to nature and the freedom of his spirit, the uh, mystery of grace and sin, which can be comprehended in any coherent philosophy, and finally, the relationship of this curious individual to the whole drama, the mysterious drama of history. And I should say, whatever you might say about the Christian faith uh, in Obscurantus way, defending it in terms of miracles and fantastic uh, credibilities, this is what makes it permanently true. That it is a clue to the, that is a source of wisdom and power about ourselves in our relationship to God and to our fellow man. But there is nothing in the Bible that gives us an analysis of the structures of the cosmos, as you have it in all philosophies, and in regard to the consistencies of human behavior in society, there were, there must always be this commerce. Now, the medieval synthesis between culture and uh, the Christian faith was inadequate. The culture was a classical culture, and the Christian faith had a certain pinnacles above these uh, uh, natural and rational cohesions, and this broke down. What I tried to say two decades ago was that the medieval synthesis broke down in Renaissance and Reformation and they were contradictory to each other, and there must be some new synthesis found. Now, this is a very uh, tedious thesis, perhaps, and sat by the those who have read my former work, and I'm not going to elaborate what I said before, but I think that I feel this more than ever, that the great theological problem is to find a valid synthesis between the disciplines of culture, philosophical, scientific, historical, and the main affirmations of the Christian faith which culminate in the Christian Christ. The classical culture, I say, broke down, and you have these contradictions between the Renaissance, which represented on the whole cultural pursuits, and Protestantism, Reformation. And I think we ought to recognize there ought to be not too uh, hardy to recognize that the Reformation, with its biblicism, taken neatly, was essentially obscurantist. So obscurantist that the 19th century Protestantism tried to build a new synthesis, liberal Protestantism. And that also was erroneous. Because it depended too much on 
The late Renaissance is the enlightenment of two ideas of the perfectibility of man that didn't, knew nothing about sin, and the idea of progress. It misinterpreted both the mystery of the individual and the mystery of uh, history, or the tragic character of both individual life and history. Now, this is the only reminiscence that I will make and say that I came to Union at the height of the left-wing liberal movement called the Social Gospel, which was essentially utopian. Uh, it was a kind of a combination of Marxism and, uh, and liberalism, the idea of progress, the idea of apocalypse, and uh, most of us were partly influenced by it and, and ultimately reacted against it. It's interesting thing that uh, what caused our action was not some great insight of our own, but simply world history, because you could say that liberalism in all of its forms, secular and Christian, broke down in Europe with the First World War and broke down in America with the Great Depression. That's the difference between Europe and America. It didn't break down until the Great Depression here. And so uh, we were subject uh, to what is called Neo-Reformation thought. I remember a much Karl Barth's rhetoric influenced all of us and how creative it was. One of the frightening things about life is to find that some individuals at some period of their life were very creative and then ceased to be, to be creative. That's, that's, that's the fate of all of us. At any rate, I find now that Barthianism is on the whole the instrument of a new obscuratism. Despite the fact that Barth is a very sophisticated man who a curious combination of uh, real sophistication and naivety in him. He speaks uh, very sophisticatedly about the legends of sagas and the myths of the Bible and whether it's myths, saga, or legend. And then he takes very seriously. I'm afraid that many of the neo partners all of the partners I would take seriously. Uh, what did God mean by having the second creation story where uh, God took a rib out of Adam to make Eve. Now, this is supposed to be very important, and I don't think it is. I think it's obscurantist. Thank That's fine. <laughs> I, um, uh, I hope you like Reinhold. Um, uh, he was a source of energy, uh, a man of uncommon uh, insight, uh, I've oftentimes wondered if the persuasiveness of Reinhold Niebuhr comes from his extraordinary one-liners, which may or may not be related to the thought. Um, uh, but I wanted to I wanted to play that for you because um, Henry Levinson, um, uh, a graduate of Princeton and uh, for many years the head of the department at the University of North Carolina Greensboro, and one of the great James scholars. Uh, recently reviewed my book with a grain of the universe and suggested that I certainly must hate Reinhold Niebuhr. I certainly do not hate Niebuhr, though I am a Bardian. 
Um, in fact, I admire Niebuhr's energy and his no bullshit style. I mean, it was uh, it was refreshing, um, chastening for uh, American Protestantism because at least one of the things that Niebuhr never made a mistake of being was nice. <laughs> but I think Niebuhr's lack of interest in what he called the technical issues in theology and not long after um, uh, where he in the, where we ended the tape, he says, I've never, he said it many times, I've never been competent in the technical issues of theology and quite frankly, I've never had the interest to become competent in them. I think uh, his lack of interest in what he called the technical issues in theology betrayed um, his work uh, and it, it, if Christians are going to make a contribution to the world as we find it, that is certainly the part of Niebuhr that is going to have to be left behind. And with the grain of the universe, I certainly develop a critique of Niebuhr that crudely might be characterized as the attempt to show that Niebuhr was so vitally a Christian and embedded in a still robust Protestant culture, it was almost impossible for him to recognize that at best his theology underwrote a deism to sustain a form of Stoicism disguised as Christianity. Niebuhr was a theological liberal. He insisted you must make for example, a strong distinction between primitive myths and what he called permanent myths. Permanent myths are all are necessary to express the features of our world that are otherwise unexpressible. Levinson, for example, quotes as part of his review Niebuhr's response to Norman Kemp Smith's suggestion that Niebuhr's Gifford lectures were giving aid and comfort to the fundamentalist by defending the doctrine of the bodily resurrection, Niebuhr responded, I must have expressed myself badly. I have not the slightest interest in the empty tomb or the physical resurrection, but only in the resurrection as a concept expressing the idea that the fulfillment of life does not mean the negation and destruction of historical reality which is a unity of body and soul, freedom and necessity, time and eternity, but the completion of this unity. Should I read that to you again? <laughs> I take it you got it. Or, for example, it is seldom noticed in the preface to the 1964 edition of The Nature and Destiny of Man, Niebuhr observed he still believes that human evil primarily expressed in undue self-concern, is a corruption of its essential freedom and grows with its freedom. Therefore, every effort to equate evil purely with ignorance of the mind and passions of the body is confusing and erroneous. He notes he used the religious symbols of the fall and of original sin to counter these suggestions. He then says, quote, only regret, uh, his only regret is that I did not realize that the legendary character of the one, um, the fall, and the dubious connotations of the other, original sin, 
would prove so offensive to the modern mind the, uh, uh, that my use of them obscured my essential thesis and, my, and that my realistic rather than idealistic interpretation of human nature. I mean, that's, I mean, people celebrated him as the great neo-Orthodox theologian uh, associated with people like Karl Barth. I mean, one of, the, of course, the secrets is, is there never was a position called neo-Orthodoxy, but it was created by some people to make it look like there was some kind of radical recovery of uh, Christian speech that um, uh, uh, Niebuhr was always firmly anchored in the Protestant liberal world and in particular gained much from the work of Ernst Trelch. As Niebuhr was to say in the Introduction to Faith and Politics, published in 1968, he remained concerned to validate the resources of biblical faith in, in relation to the secular disciplines to show the continuing viability of religious faith as, quote, an expression of trust in the meaning of human existence, despite all the cross-purposes, incongruities, and ills in nature and history. It is one of the misunderstandings of modern culture that these ills make faith in God impossible. In fact, they make it necessary. Faith in an ultimate and mysterious source and end of existence gives men the possibilities of affirming life. Note that God turns out to be the mysterious source and end of existence, not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, so Niebuhr fundamentally thought such heady theological language, maybe too strong, was, was epiphenomenal on how religious language fundamentally was an attempt to express the paradoxes of uh, human existence. Now, I think I've done no more than to take Niebuhr at his word. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to play the tape, I, as I hope you heard, anything that I've said, which people would oftentimes take objection to, Niebuhr was more than ready to say, that's what I believe. I mean, he, he hated obscurantism. I, mean, he, I don't know if he hated Bart more than he hated obscurantism, but it was close. <laughs> he, he also had no use for Catholicism, I can assure you. Uh, but all I've tried to do is to take Niebuhr at his word because I respect Niebuhr deeply. Uh, but, but many seem to think I get Niebuhr wrong. Uh, uh, Lovin, for example contrasts my views with those of Langdon Gilkey, uh, who um, has written a, uh, a book on Niebuhr's theology. To my mind, it could have been a good deal shorter. The, uh, uh, I refer to this book in a response to uh, Peter Oakes and Paul Griffiths um, about With the Grain of the Universe. And I say that these two reviewers pay little attention to my account of Niebuhr because they are not, nor have they ever been, tempted by Protestant liberal alternatives. Peter, of course, is a conservative Jew, and Paul Griffiths is a Roman Catholic. But that is certainly not the case for many who will no doubt find my account of Niebuhr problematic. 
Niebuhr made it possible for several generations of Christians to remain Christian. For example, Langdon Gilkey, in his recent book on Niebuhr, a theological study, begins with the story of his first encounter with Niebuhr when Niebuhr preached at Harvard Chapel in 1940. This is the Langdon Gilkey that uh, taught for many years at the University of Chicago and that Robin uh, referred to. Gilkey, who had been convinced by the secular liberals that Christianity was indefensible, powerful, powerfully describes his experience on hearing Niebuhr preach at Harvard Chapel. The torrent of words, insights, and ideas that issued forth from the towering figure in the pulpit stunned me. This was not gentle and apologetic persuasion rounding out our nice, ordinary experience with a moral and religious interpretation. This was, from beginning to end, a challenge to the assumptions of my sophisticated modernity. And that challenge came with a vividly new interpretation of my world. In fact, a quite different viewpoint on everything was set before me, a viewpoint in which my confused and deeply troubled ordinary experience suddenly clarified itself, righted, and became for the moment intelligible. To my astonishment, Niebuhr identified his own utterly realistic appraisal of the domestic and international situation, much more real than that of my philosophical mentors Bertrand Russell, John Dewey, or George Santayana, with what might be called the biblical viewpoint. Further, he pointed out not only the naive optimism of the humanistic and naturalistic philosophers I had treasured, but even more the experiential validity and the moral strength of this other biblical perspective. I felt overwhelmed, as if I'd stepped into another space, one in which a quality of light changed the social scene, which was once obscure and, what could not, and, what, and which could now be comprehended. If you've ever wanted a conversion narrative, there you got it. <laughs> I mean, I thought, and, and that was Niebuhr's experience. I mean, that, that, was his, that was his effect on person after person after person. He, he described himself as a circuit writer um, uh, among um, uh, Protestant colleges in America. And he preached over and over again. And he had this effect. I mean, I... Reading this, I, the only thing I could think of is uh, the, the wonderful uh, conversion narratives A.D. AD Knott des, uh, describes in conversion, dealing with uh, how pagans were converted to Gnostic sects. Now, I, uh, I, do not ex I do not expect to convince Gilkey and the many others who experienced Niebuhr in a similar way that Niebuhr's theology is at best thin. Indeed, I fear that Gilkey's defense of Niebuhr but underwrites my account of the problems in Niebuhr's theology and with the grain of the universe. Gilkey, for example, argues, quote, that the heart of Niebuhr's apologetic is that every culture and each individual life must find such a principle of genuine transcendence and that the biblical faith in a transcendent God supplies the need of a culture's life. Yet that is to get the cart before the horse just to the extent that one assumes to know how to talk about transcend that you know how to talk about transcendence before one knows how to talk about God. Gilkey also defends Niebuhr's distinction between primitive and permanent myths without asking on what basis one can distinguish the one from the other. 
He accepts Niebuhr's understanding of the symbolic character of religious speech without asking himself what implications follow or how the language works for our being in the world. For those enamored with Niebuhr or with Protestant liberalism in general, Wittgenstein simply did not exist. I call attention to Gilkey's account of Niebuhr to suggest why the chapters on Niebuhr's with the grain of the universe are so important for the overall argument. I think I developed a devastating account of Niebuhr. I've done so with some sadness because I deeply admire Niebuhr. However, I do not expect my criticisms of Niebuhr to have deep effect for the simple reason that I think Niebuhr's Christianity is about all the Christianity a liberal culture can stand. Thank you. I, uh, just just to briefly respond and perhaps initiate the conversation, I, I certainly think what we see is is a convergence, at least in our understandings of what Niebuhr had to say. Uh, sometimes I have thought that Stanley and I were reading two different uh, figures when when we talked about Niebuhr's ideas. Uh, it, it's now rather rather more clear that. Uh, we have indeed been reading the, the same Niebuhr, uh, but but coming to quite different evaluations of, uh, of of how he relates to the the contemporary world. Uh, the I I think probably what we need to do is is in fact open this up to begin to have more of a dialogue about the, the specifics of his uh, his theological ideas. But uh, I just want to reiterate what I was attempting to say in in my initial presentation, which is that that in order to continue his kind of of theological insights into the human situation, uh, we're we're going to have to take a quite different approach to the the political and, and social realities that are around us. Uh, and and I hope that we don't get uh, in in the subsequent discussion uh, so bogged down in reading Niebuhr's theology in relationship to his own time that we, that, that we neglect some of the of the further questions about the implications of either retaining or rejecting that theology for our uh, our present situation. Um. How to, how to join uh, the argument. One of my problems with, I, I suppose, all the ways that Robin suggests that we need to go beyond Niebuhr still within the realist, realistic mode. Um, one, it's not clear to me how the kinds of things that Robin wants to say about the role of the sovereign state, with which I largely agree with, 
um, uh, the contingencies of all order, um, um, the challenge to status quo realism, and I don't, I can't, um, I can't imagine any realism that isn't a status quo position. Um, uh, I can more or less agree with, but I don't know how much they have to do with Reinhold Niebuhr. You could do any of that without him. Um, uh, and, um, uh, and I don't know uh, why you uh, particularly want to go in those directions. But the more determinative problem, I think, for me is you heard Niebuhr say, we need a new synthesis. Niebuhr was about creating a Christianity that could maintain the Christian hegemonic position in the world so that you could know how to go on in a reasonable manner. Another way to say that, though it would need to be carefully qualified, if you've ever wanted to know what a Constantinian looks like, that's what it looks like, providing a synthesis for a new mode of life. That's, I think that that project is not accidentally related to his unconcern about fundamental theological claims. And I don't have that project um, of having enduring Christianity as part of the necessities of your social world. And I think that that's probably a very profound difference between Robin and myself and also helps determine the difference between our understanding of Reinhold Niebuhr. Okay, questions and answers. But please, I, I, I'll call on people, but please make it a question and please direct it to, uh, please direct it to uh, one or both of uh, our panelists, all right? Yes. Right. I, I mean, I would certainly disagree with the notion that, that to sustain any kind of Christian realism is, is about maintaining a cultural hegemony. Uh, there again, this is one of the, the points at which Niebuhr himself was not very good. I mean, if you wanted to discard a, a selection of Niebuhr's text, I would recommend that you start with the parts where he talks about other religions. Uh, but but that is a reflection of the times and and not uh, you know of a kind of hegemonic uh, Christian bias. You see what what Niebuhr was in was trying to do was was to develop a way of bringing those biblical insights to bear on uh, on contemporary problems, testing them against the realities of the of the present situation and. 
to the extent that he wanted to maintain uh, the the Christian position, it was because he believed that it could vindicate itself relative to those other alternative ways of of looking at the world uh, that that were competing with it. He did that primarily against other uh, views of the world in in Western uh, Christian tradition, but it raises the question whether whether there isn't a Niburian dialogue that's possible today between faith traditions in which we do comparative ethics not by looking for underlying rational principles that these different traditions happen to share, uh, you know, nor by doing comparative accounts of their 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 myths and and uh, traditions, but but in fact precisely by trying to relate them to. Uh, the, the problems of globalization. Uh, and, and I suspect that what would come out of that would, would be, a, uh, you know, done in a Niburian way, would be uh, a, a dialogue in which, far from having a hegemonic uh, Christianity, we might really be talking about things like how can religious traditions take back the problem of controlling religious violence that we've handed over to the state for the last uh, five centuries. Um, I like uh, Robin's attempt to say that Niebuhr's views about other religions was uh, just historical accident of the time. Um, uh, uh, He had no use for Buddhism. Uh, Buddhism, he said, lacked... Uh, an account of history. And that's the reason why the Far East is incapable of the innovations of the West. Now, um, that wasn't accidental. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's constitutive of the position. And that... Um, um, and what's, what's your use for Buddhism? I kind of well, <laughs> I, I, a, few, uh, a few years ago, I was giving a... I was I was giving a talk at, at uh, Hendricks College in Conway, Arkansas, and after I finished, um, a Jay McDaniel, who's a student of John Cobb, um, said after I finished, um, he said, your problem, Stanley, is you give us no theory that can help us talk with Buddhists. And I said, well, gee, Jay, I'm so sorry. How many do you have here in Conway? Uh, the... Uh, <laughs> You know, and if and if you have and if you have some here, um, um, uh, what good would a theory do you? I just thought you'd go talk to them. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, and that's what I—that's the way I feel about it. You know, um, uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm spending my whole life just trying to figure out a little of what in the hell it means to be a Christian. What in the hell is? I don't—I don't have any idea what it means to be a Buddhist, and uh, and I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to listen, you know, and I think it's important, but, you know, I don't have to come up with an account uh, for it. Um, um, you know, we Christians like to tell our story, and then we have to hear it back. And uh, that's, um, that's one of the things that you'd have to do. You have to listen to the other folks' stories, too. Um, and I, but I don't want to let, when I said hegemonic, listen to that language. The medieval world failed. The Renaissance and Protestantism created incompatibilities that could not exist. In our time, we must create a new synthesis for a culture 
that can be carried forward. Now, of course, that doesn't sound like Christian hegemony, but it depends on, as Robin used the language, biblical insights. Now, I happen to believe there are no insights in the Bible at all. It's not about insights. Um, and, but just to the extent that you turn the Bible into an insight, it becomes the kind of knowledge that looks like it can provide the kind of synthesis that can produce the, ancients, the anxious conscience of the bourgeoisie who will be ready to kill for a lesser evil but worry a lot about it. Now, now, that's exactly what I'm trying to oppose in that way, and I think, I think it is a kind of synthesis that he had very strongly in the broad historical perspective he was trying to draw. George Hunsinger. Just of the question is, do, does Niebuhr's realism uh, in, include, uh, is he insufficiently realistic about the, the connections between his realism and American capitalism, between uh, uh, American uh, realism and American power? Uh, does, does he over, is his anti-communism so strong as to make him unrealistic about his analysis of the international political situation. And then I, I take the more, you know, the systematically relevant point here. Uh, does that have something to do with his effort to create a kind of synthesis that Stanley Hauerwas is referring to that is, is designed to maintain a kind of, of cultural hegemony? I would have to say that, that Niebuhr, late in his life, 
uh, is, is in some ways insufficiently realistic by his own criteria. I mean, you look at the early Niebuhr, uh, and the kind of critique of economic forces and the, the way that democracy is limited by uh, economic power is, is, you know, is very much there. Um, but again, what, what I was trying to do was say, let's look at that post-war political realism in, in context where the issue was precisely to help a group of basically idealistic Christians deal with the realities of a world that was going to be divided for all he could see for the foreseeable future between these rival superpowers in which uh, the, the realities of power uh, had to be dealt with and, and, and addressed and, and where we, we had to expect that, that maintaining that kind of stable balance of power was, was the best that we could do. Now, I've said on other occasions that if you if you ask about if you ask the mid-century Christian realist, it's probably the case that, the, that they would predict that Nelson Mandela would have died in jail and that the Berlin Wall would have never fallen because those were events that perhaps ought not to have happened you know in a certain kind of realist reading of the uh, uh, of the contemporary situation but I think the, the fundamental point that, that, uh, that I'm trying to make and that, that Stanley and I are disagreeing about is that, that Niebuhr has, Niebuhr's thought has a way of getting beyond the, the static realities of that world that Niebuhr himself, uh, you know, didn't always deploy late in his career. The idea of synthesis See, I, I guess I'm not sure where we get the connection between synthesis and, and hegemony. It seems to me that the kind of synthesis that Niebuhr is talking about is simply how do those of us who begin with Christian convictions navigate our way through the world uh, and, and, and through the, the changing challenges that events throw up to us without getting so wedded to any one particular way of reading those circumstances that, that, that we can't adjust. His, his whole, the, the point of, of seeing a new synthesis is to say that this underlying biblical way of looking at reality provides you with a way of taking your reading of contemporary problems seriously without taking it ultimately seriously. I take back the word hegemony. Um, uh, it, it's too strong. Um, uh, but there is still a sense, and I just want to have a real quick response um, to George, this. The problem with realism is there's no way to account for its own ideological perversions from within realism. And that that, I think, bedeviled Niebuhr. There was just no way to account for I thought you might want to yeah. <laughs> there, there is no self-corrective ideology. That's part of the point of, of Niebuhr's realism. You know, it, it, I mean, I... I it, but Robin, then he always gets to find the high road against the cynics and the idealists. And so I'm real. Uh, how are you, I mean, how are you ever going to have a, a question? 
it seems to me that you've been pointing to, to exactly the way that happens. That is, that is to say, we, we take a look at events and, and see how, how we illuminate those events in, in, in ways uh, that, uh, you know, that again, allow us, allow us to deal with them and, and to move forward. Uh, but Cornell wants to. Stacy's next. Then Cornell. The question is, does God do anything in history for, for Reinhold Niebuhr? And I, I think the, the answer to that is that, that God acts in history primarily, uh, you know, through, through the agency of individuals and groups who, who are motivated by these uh, uh, religious uh, ideas is of one kind or another, and, and, and you know, specifically as far as he's concerned in the, the, the way that God acts in history out of uh, the, uh, the Christian understanding of history is, is, is through this continual realistic effort to, to deal with uh, uh, history and its changing situations. But of course, there's always then that Niburian point about the irony of history. That is to say that what we do when we act on the way that our understanding of Christianity illuminates the, the human situation is bound to be uh, incomplete, imperfect, reversed in certain ways by history in ways that we, we didn't expect it. And God's action in history is that whole complex of human action uh, which, which can't uh, know its own ends and gets used in, in ironic uh, ways. Uh, and there, there's clearly an idea of providence behind this, but it's not an idea of providence that we can spell out within history so, so that you know, we, we can't look at a series of historical events and say, uh, with with the kind of confidence, this is what God is doing, and therefore this is what we ought to do next. Uh, the best we can do is, is is to say, you know, looking realistically at at, at this set of circumstances, uh, the 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 right response seems to to uh, be to to recognize the contingencies in this way and push the thing in this direction, uh, and and. God knows what the what the outcome of that will ultimately be. The question, Stacy, is: Does God act in history for H. Richard Niebuhr, um, uh, in spite of the meaning of Revelation? Um, um, actually, H. Richard didn't ask exactly that question. He said, "What sustains hope for Reinhold Niebuhr? What sustains hope for Reinhold Niebuhr?" Um, um, the, um, uh, I just 
the very question of can God act in history, interestingly enough, is a Protestant liberal question because it makes it sound like that you've got to come up with an account of God's ability to act that you can then display out of all the peoples of the world, I've called you Israel to be my promised people. When in fact, out of all the peoples of the world, you are my promised people, should tell you what it means for God to act. <laughs> so, and Reinhold Niebuhr, I mean exactly to the extent that Reinhold Niebuhr made himself susceptible to the question, does God act in history? You have a sense that you're talking Protestant liberalism. Cornell West. No, I wasn't on the cover. I swear this is true. First of all, I was not named the, the best American theologian. I was named the best theologian in America. Uh, and <laughs> and um, I swear to God, when, when the publicist at the Divinity School came to tell me this, my first reaction was, best is not a theological word. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I and I mean that. I mean, it's stupid. Um, uh, the um, um, I think that's I think that's terrific. And I and I I I mean, I wanted when I wrote these chapters with the grain of the universe. I wanted my admiration for Niebuhr in that way to come through, but it probably got lost in the criticism. Uh, 
because I really do admire him. I mean, I admire that kind of conversion experience that Gilkey had on hearing it. At, I mean, he, he kept a certain kind of Christianity alive within options that were not very good options at the time. Uh, I think um, I always said there was nothing wrong with Father Hesburgh except too many lunches and executive boardrooms. Um, um, Niebuhr, in some ways, had too many lunches at the Pentagon. Uh, with, uh, uh, and, um, you know, that's heady stuff. Uh, and you can be pulled into it very quickly. I mean, I mean the, Niebuhr's of the, the Niebuhr of the 20s and 30s, I love. I think, you know, he really had that edge. And I, I don't want to discount any part of his life. I think that... Um, I uh, I think that the um, stance he took appeared at the time um, uh, quite um, antagonistic for people that thought of themselves as secular, and that was a gift that he that he uh, that he gave us. Uh, so, Cornell, I think you ought to write that story because I think it's a story that can be written, and I'm sorry I didn't do it. Yeah, right, and, uh, and uh, 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 because I think, you know, uh, that's, uh, that's a way that hopefully, I mean, the mistakes we're making, people will be able to name and say, nonetheless, we were trying to stay um, uh, true to um, uh, the gospel in our day. Go ahead, please. How would Reinhold Niebuhr have responded to the genocide in uh, Rwanda um, where 95% of the people, the Hutsis and the Tutus killing one another were Christians? Well, I hope he would have said the imperialists are shits. Um, uh, the Hutus and the um, uh, Tutsis were fundamentally created by the colonial administrators of Rwanda, and that um, that they left the country in that unbelievable tension and poverty um, that then put one at one another's throats is unconscionable. Um, I think. I think in turn, I mean, I regard it a terrible judgment on the, on the church that we, didn't, that we didn't say, you know, one of the things that it means to be a Christian is not to kill another human being because they're a Tutsi or a Hutu. Uh, but it's exactly, I mean, 
Niebuhr's realism had everything to do with violence and the necessity of violence to achieve limited justice in a complex world. Where he found the voice of nonviolence was not clear. Uh, so exactly the kind of Christianity I represent hopefully would be to say, if we're going to be the gospel, then surely it must mean that we say you don't kill one another for our tribal loyalties. And you know that word tribal, it has to be carefully qualified. You can't kill one another for tribal or national loyalties. I mean, that would be a good place to start. Um, but Niebuhr, I'm sure, would have gone after the imperialists. I mean, he, he, he had steady vision about those matters. I, I think the, the last comment is, is, is exactly right, that, that Niebuhr's analysis would have, would have centered on the imperialism that was behind the, the genocide uh, and, you know, that, that he saw the, the limits on, on what the church can do, but he also saw the way in which the church in that kind of situation could be corrupted by its, its relationship to uh, power. Um, the, the only thing I would differ with, just, just to be provocative, I guess, is to say that, that the connection between violence and achieving limited justice or the, the uh, willingness to resort to violence in order to uh, achieve limited justice, that kind of realism is not Niburian but Lutheran realism. It, 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 it may be Augustinian realism. It reaches much further back into, into the tradition than, than uh, uh, Niebuhr's realism. <laughs> Yes, and that's why there's Lutheranism and then there's Christianity. The, uh, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> I, uh, uh, right, um, uh, the, um, I, um, um, Niebuhr said, over the State Department door should be written, when in doubt, kill as few as possible. Now that's a very wise statement because you understand that it's never a choice between killing or not killing. It's who you kill for what purposes. And you should do that with humility, where the killing and the dying will not invite you to give greater moral justification than is necessary for the killing. So Niebuhr wanted to limit violence by making sad killers. Now, how you do that in an imperial country <laughs> is a real question, it seems to me. But he never, see, Niebuhr, um, Niebuhr had not thought through the just war issues. I mean, he kind of gestured toward them, but he had never really thought through them uh, in terms of what what it might mean to underwrite a certain 
politically controlled form of violence for a concrete political end. That was for Ramsey to do. And um, uh, Paul always thought he could make Niburian realism compatible with his account of just war. And I think that that is still a project that awaits fulfillment. Eric Gregory was next. Answer the first question is not yet. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, the um, um, I mean the problem with under God and the debate that's going on right now is analogous to I think the debate about the Ten Commandments and. The difficulty about the Ten Commandments is it makes the Ten Commandments, you forget that the God before you should have no other is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <laughs> now, how can that be put in schoolrooms and on law walls? I don't want it. <laughs> I don't want the state and the general society sponsoring my God, because it just confuses Christians. <laughs> so, uh, and I don't know that uh, uh, I don't know that Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, and and besides, I think it's bad. I, it confuses Christians, but it's also bad for the kind of generalized religiosity in America. Um, uh, but um, I don't I don't think Niebuhr ever commented on those kind on that kind of issue. Do you know Robin? Um, uh, he did, I think Niebuhr kind of assumed a generalized Christian culture. I, I mean, I've thought, I wonder what Niebuhr would do about same-sex marriage because he had very strong views about man and woman were the way it was. Uh, I, it would be interesting to see how he would have moved on those kinds of matters. They just didn't come up for him because they weren't on the docket yet. Yeah. Uh, what would happen if the state is related to Christ witnessing the gospel? Is that it? Well, I don't know. I haven't, again, I, I thought that, that, that's what I meant by saying I haven't seen it yet. Uh, uh, when it, when it, when it comes up 
um, you know, we'll have to deal with it. But, gee, I sure as hell wouldn't trust it. I mean, you know, I mean, I... <laughs> um, yes, I would want it. Yes, I would want it. If it means... Um, it's interesting. Um, um, Robert um, uh, and Blanche Jensen are sitting right there. And I gave a lecture years ago at Gettysburg Seminary and um, um, about should we eliminate war. And Blanche asked me at that time, did I think a nonviolent state was possible? And I, I, I hadn't really thought about it. And I had to say yes. <laughs> There's a little footnote that no one's noticed, Blanche, that's there um, uh, in that paper that I later did. So, yeah, I think it's, uh, I certainly am more than ready to continue to work for that as a, uh, as a possibility. As Eric suggested, for, for somebody of my kind of realist persuasion, it's a kind of softball question, but, uh, uh, you know, I think, I think historically what the idea of under God, uh, means is the recognition that, that the nation is not ultimate. It's a pretty crude way of expressing that, either, either theologically or uh, politically. Uh, but, but I think the Christian realist has to say that, that that is, in fact, what you're constantly seeking from the state is a recognition that it's not ultimate. And you do that sometimes by preaching sermons and sometimes by working on a political philosophy that, that will undergird that. Because if the state doesn't have a coherent way of talking about itself as a state that sees itself as less than ultimate, then the temptation to adopt some other kind of politics uh, will, will constantly be there. And, and so I, there again, I think the, the Christian realist has, as a religious vocation, that kind of role in helping to shape uh, an appropriate kind of, of political philosophy with regard, you know, it, it's one of those things where I, where I wish that the words had never been put in the pledge because they're bad theology, as, as Stanley suggests, but I'm not sure I would want to endorse any of the reasons that can be given for removing. <laughs> I, I, I just, I think... This relates to George's question, because once you enshrine democracy as limited government, then there is no way to limit it. <laughs> and and Niebuhr tended to do that. I mean that we have we have in place the institutional and cultural means to limit the state. And does it feel like a limited state to you? <laughs> I mean, and so I think that's a real problem. Uh, last question goes to Scott Collins Jones. Thank you. 
That's a terrific question, Scott. And I suppose, I mean, one of the things. I, oh, I, the question was, um, I'm sorry, I haven't been doing that. Um, um, uh, the question was, is um, uh, given my account of Bart and God's hiddenness um, um, and my critique of Bart, Bart's insufficient um, ecclesiology, what I, and I think, I hope it's a, it's a very nuanced critique. The, um, uh, 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 that um, does, do I need an account of what keeps limits on the church uh, uh, in terms of whether um, it itself could become um, overwhelmingly prideful, et cetera, and try, um, um, the answer is obviously yes. I want to be careful. I mean, God's hiddenness is always the other side of God's revelation. So it is not a generalized hiddenness. It's just, it's what I, is all I want to resist there. And I think Bart had all that just right. Um, uh, and then I want, and so... It's very hard if you're getting, if you're worshiping that God, um, you're going to be pretty chastened most of the time about your righteousness. Um, and you must also remember, I go to Holy Family Episcopal Church in Chapel Hill. Um, uh, when George Bush declared a war on terrorism, um, my um, rector said at this time, he said at this time when we are at war, and I said, could you say at this time when we are told we are at war? And he got it. And uh, I said, he said at this time when we are told we are at war, we must begin every service in penance. And so we open every service in penance, knowing damn well that our nice lives in Chapel Hill make possible this. And our church's unfaithfulness um, in being an adequate um, witness makes this possible. So um, the, the answer is finally, Scott, though, there's no guarantees. There's no guarantees that um, all we can pray for is that we're never that we are never deluded to believe that we Christians have got it. <laughs> because it's pretty hard to get the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. <laughs> Please join with me now in thanking our speakers for a wonderful occasion.